You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hey folks, Paulie here. Having a great time on Season 9. Great having all these new guests on. We're just going to have a break for a couple of weeks. So we're going to go back and hopefully you'll enjoy some of our classic episodes from the past few seasons. And then we'll be back with some new guests to round out the year. Okay, Paulie, now you're up this week, and I've got to say, thank God, after 20 years of living in Australia, you're finally turning your eyes to the great southern land for some history, mate. (laughs) That's right. Okay, now, as you can imagine, I didn't really want to do the boring old British Captain Cook stuff, Um, so I want to have a look at Australia before the Brits arrived. And obviously, when it comes to, like, Indigenous history and Australia... (laughs) You don't want to hear from two old white guys like us. No. But in future episodes, we will be sitting down with someone who really knows their stuff to talk about the long history that occurred before the Europeans turned up. That's right. But today, Mikey, I want to go Dutch. You know, we've got a lot of names, haven't we, in Australia that come from Holland. You know, New Holland, of course, New Zealand over the other side of the ditch, Van Diemen's Line, that kind of thing. And, of course, they all came from that 17th century Dutch Golden Age we were talking about back in the Tulip Mania episode. Yes, but mate, there are some theories, and apparently there's a map in Los Angeles Library, but I don't want to get you too excited, <laughs> that, that indicates that even the Portuguese might have made it as far south as Botany Bay, as far back as 1522, but it's still a bit contentious. No, that's right, yeah, there were some Europeans even before the Dutch, yeah, there might even have been the Chinese, of course, as well, and we definitely know there were some whalers coming down from America. They'd quite regularly stop off in Australia, but today I want to stick with some more solid dates and the first landing we know about for sure seems to be 1606 and Willem Jansoon or Willem Jans as he's known and his landing on what's now Cape York. 1606 that's the same year as Spanish explorer uh, Luis Vez de Torres. Torres yes. Yeah, sails through the straits where we get the words Torres Strait. That's right and then in 1618 we know that Lennart Jakobsoon the captain of the Mauritius he sights under the northwest cape in western Australia. There seems to be quite a few Dutch explorations in Western Australia at this stage. And then, of course, in 1626, 1627, you've got the famous Peter Newts, and he does a lot of mapping around the southern coast. Oh, the Great Australian Bight, that area. All that kind of stuff. And, of course, if we're talking 1620s, we're still 20 years before Abel Tasman came on his two famous voyages, the first of which, of course, went to Van Diemen's Land in New Zealand, and the second explored in 1644, more up in the north, yeah, that area of the coast between what's now Broome and the Gulf of Carpentaria. But, mate, why are there so many Dutch explorers around this region? Obviously, like you mentioned at the top of the show, the Dutch were in a bit of a golden age around this time, but... Right. Well, you know how we've spoken in a few episodes now how the Brits set up their famous East India Company. There was also the Dutch East India Company. In actual fact, in many ways, they led the way, particularly to what's now Indonesia and their new capital, Batavia, which is now Jakarta. And, of course, they're using that as a base to try and trade for all the great spices coming out um, of the region. And interestingly enough, what we're going to focus on today is a ship called the Batavia, which sails out of Amsterdam in 1628 and is wrecked probably off what's now the Houtman 
Abolhos, a little sort of chain of islands and reefs off Western Australia. And I'm afraid I've got my first two bad pronunciations of Dutch names to start us off here, Mikey. We've got the commander, Francisco Pelsert, and we've got a skipper by the name of Ariane Jacobs. Hi, folks. Today we are talking about early European voyages of discovery around Australia, mm. particularly the Dutch. And today we're going to focus in on one of the most infamous maritime disasters in history, the Batavia. That's right. So this Batavia ship, Mikey, it's left Amsterdam in 1628 and it's loaded with gold and silver. It's got 12 treasure chests um, on board. And this, of course, is to go out to Batavia, what's now Jakarta in the East Indies, and to buy up lots of spices to take back and trade at home. I just want to jump in here, because when we say spices, we think about, you know, sort of cloves and nutmeg, nutmeg and okay, cinnamon, yeah. but a lot of it was pepper. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was, pepper was very, very expensive this time, and they could do a roaring trade yeah. there because they had the monopoly, yes. um, very much the Dutch in the East Indies. So as you can imagine, on board, you've not just got these treasure chests, you've also got quite a few merchants who are mm. hoping to, you know, go out there and find their fortune. And one of these merchants is a guy called Geronimus Cornelis. Yeah, I've heard of him before, mate. And that guy is just trouble waiting to happen. He certainly is, Mike. He's about 30 years old at this stage, but he's already been bankrupt. He's an apothecary, a sort of chemist, and he's fleeing the Netherlands. And he's actually in fear of arrest because he's been part of this weird, heretical cult following the beliefs of a painter called Terentius. I've heard of Terentius. In, mm. fa- in fact, he was thrown in prison. He was accused of being an atheist, accused of being a Satanist, yes. a blasphemer. In fact, he only survives because he finds refuge in the English court of Charles I, who, who was a fan of his paintings. That's right. But Cornelius, he's had to hop it. And almost as soon as he's got on board, it seems that he's found a, a bit of a soulmate in the skipper, Arian Jacobs. Well, that's interesting, mate, because Jacobs and the commander are Pelsiart. They actually have bad history. It goes back to some incident no one can quite put their finger on, but two years before. So they, the commander and the skipper of this expedition hate each other. That's right. They're already at loggerheads. And so it's quite easy for Cornelius to get Jacobs on his side. He's got a new plan to hijack the ship, hijack the treasure and start a new life. So it seems that when they leave the Cape of Good Hope, because obviously on the way they'd stop him for mm. supplies in what's now Southern, Southern Africa. Um, when they leave Cape of Good Hope, Jacobs deliberately steers the Batavia off course, away from the other ships in the fleet. That's right, because there were quite a few ships in there, about seven or something. That's right, yeah. Normally they go in a small fleet you know, for protection and in, just in case anything goes wrong in terms of storms. So, mate, what was their plan? They've decided, right, what we're going to do, if we can, we'll get some of the other sailors on board for a mutiny, All right. steal the ship and start a new life. So they try and persuade a small group of the sailors to sexually assault what? Yeah, one of the young female passengers, a woman called Lucretia Jans. Now, I've got to ask, how is that going to work in the plan? Well, what they reckon is this Lucretia Jans, she's the daughter of a merchant. She's been married off to a soldier who's already stationed out in Batavia, right. in Jakarta, and she's going out there to meet him and live with him. So what um, Jacobs says to the sailors, if we provoke Pelsa, the commander, by you know basically sexually assaulting this woman, you'll get disciplined, but he'll come down on you such a ton of bricks, because she's actually quite a high-ranking uh, female passenger, um, that everyone will think he's too harsh, he's not someone you want to serve, they'll want to get rid of him as commander, we'll take over, we'll have our mutiny, and off we'll sail. 
It's a pretty bizarre plan, mate. <laughs> yeah, and funny enough, it doesn't work at all. It's a complete non-starter. No one wants to get involved, no. and they have to think of plan B. And that brings us to the 4th of June, because just before <laughs> plan B comes into action, unfortunately, they smash into what's now Morning Reef, Beacon Island, as we said, just off the Western Australia. Hmm. Now, 40 of the passengers immediately drown out of the 322 on board because they haven't got any proper lifeboats. They've only got these little things called longboats and the yawls. Also like tenders to, you know, to, to bring people and cargo onto the boat. Precisely. And they use those to get onto shore, but not mainland shore. They're still out on the islands, out on the reefs. They've tried to find some of the bigger islands, but still there. There's no fresh water. The only food they can find is sea lions. So Pelsart, the commander, says, understandably, no, we're going to have to go to the mainland. We're going to have to get a small group together to explore, to see if we can find anything that will help us to live. But unfortunately, that part of the West Australian coast, there's not much to find. So what Pelsart decides, he says, OK, I'm going to try and take one of the larger longboats trying to sail up to Batavia, try and put together a rescue mission. So he sets off, and amazingly, 33 days later, sure enough, he lands in Batavia, in the capital, and he's able to talk to the Governor-General and explain what's happened. And, of course, one of the first things he wants to include in his report is this attempted mutiny. And now, on board with him, he's taken up the bosun, who's Jan Everts. He's immediately tried and executed Jakobs, though, interestingly, he's gone with Pelsart because right. obviously he's the skipper. Um, but Pelsart seems to have never really realised he was part of the mutiny. So Jakobs is only arrested for negligence for steering the ship, of course, in the first place. So Jakobs gets off quite lightly. So what does the Governor-General do? <laughs> well, to be honest, Mikey, this Governor-General, a guy called Jan Peterzoon, I think he was probably more worried about the treasure oh, going, right. going missing than the people. So oh, he's the, the 12 treasure chests. <laughs> That's right, yes. So he sends Pelsart, he gives him a ship, a ship called the Sardam, and he's ordered to set sail and rescue as much and as many people as he can. And incredibly, after a month of searching and sailing around all these reefs off Western Australia, suddenly he does spot some of the survivors. Oh, so they didn't all die of thirst. Yeah, no, amazingly, most of them do seem to have managed to initially survive the lack of food and water. But unfortunately, thanks to Cornelies, in the time it's taken Pelsart to find them, over a 100 of the original passengers, including women, children and infants, have come to a far more gruesome end. They've essentially been massacred. By Cornelies, you're saying? What happened? Well, look, no one knows exactly for sure, but it seems to be the story went something like this. First of all, Colonel is, he's been appointed in charge while Pelsart's gone up to Batavia. But of course, he's already tried one mutiny and he's just got his eyes on the prize. He wants all the treasure to himself. So he sends off another group, a second group of 20 soldiers led by a guy called Weber Hayes. And he sends them off in search of water officially, according to the records, but really, it seems, he wants to get them out of the way, maroon them, so he's in a position of completely unchallenged authority. Ah, oh, that's why he takes away their weapons, right? That's right. And now, while he's working out how he's going to make off with all the gold, he sets up this catastrophically brutal regime whereby anyone who opens their mouth to oppose him is mercilessly slaughtered. Here's the thing he wasn't expecting, though. Hayes, the guy he sent off with the soldiers, they don't actually die on this other island. That's right. They find some wallabies to eat, and they also find a bit of water. So they set up a signal fire to let the other survivors know that they found water. But what does this do? It drives Cornelies into an even more furious rage, and now he starts picking off fellow passengers, 
just for fun. Right, but he can't get at Hayes and his men because they're safe on the other island. In fact, they even managed to devise some makeshift weapons, Mikey, um, from all the materials that are being washed up from the original wreck. And they build this sort of small fort out of limestone and coal blocks. Um, and they sort of set up a rival camp, if you like, to Cornelise. And it seems at that point, you actually have several running battles between the two sides. Actually, Hayes and the soldiers get the upper hand at one point, and they even take Cornelise hostage. They do, but the other mutineers, the original group from the sexual assault, they regroup under a guy called Walter Luz, and they're just about to launch one final siege when suddenly Pelsart, who's aboard the Sardom, his sails are spotted coming over the horizon. And this sets off a race to see who can be the first group to reach the Sardom. That's right, because, of course, whoever gets to Pelsart first will be able to give them their side of the story. Unfortunately, Hayes is the winner. Um, he presents his records. He explains what's happened. Pelsart and Hayes join forces. There's a short battle, but the mutineers are outnumbered and quite quickly captured. Cornelise and six others, well, they're captured and they're executed. But here's the thing, before they're hanged, five of them have their hands cut off. Right. Apart from Cornelis, right? he has both hands cut off and then he's hanged. Because obviously he was one of the original ringleaders and he'd even taken poor Lucretia Jans. Oh, the woman we were talking about at the start of the story. That's right, he'd taken her as his sex slave. So yeah, he got everything he got, which is good. But Paul, they didn't kill all the mutineers, did they? Well, no, and here's the anomaly actually, because the Luz guy, Walter Luz, who'd taken over the mutineers um, after Cornelis, He's actually marooned on the mainland with his cabin boy, a guy called Jan Pelgrom de Bay, and they're left to fend themselves on mainland Australia. Which would make them the first Europeans who permanently settled in Australia, <laughs> depending on how long they lived. Yeah, well, uh, unfortunately, there is no trace of what happened to them at all um, after they left. But yeah, weirdly enough, they probably are the first Europeans um, to have lived their life um, down under. Mate, I don't want to sort of trivialise this horrible event, but what was the final death toll? Well, with all the original drownings, Mikey, the massacres, the executions, only 122 of the original 322 passengers and crew made it to their final destination. Um, but the Governor General was very pleased because 10 of the 12 treasure chests were recovered. And as you can expect, young Hayes, he's hailed a hero and he receives a great promotion. But what happens to Pelsart? Yeah, well, interestingly, unfortunately for Pelsart, he's actually prosecuted for exercising a lack of authority um, as the commander and his assets are seized and he unfortunately dies a broken man less than a year later. Well, what about the ship, Pauline? Correct me if I'm wrong, because I know when it comes to archaeology, you're the buff. But didn't they find the wreck of the Batavia on a dive in the early 60s? Yeah, so fortunately, we've had these great archaeological dives in the last 50 years. And they've brought up not just bits of the ship itself, but they've brought up skeletal remains. Uh -huh. They've brought up artefacts. And if you go to Fremantle, Mikey, in the shipwreck galleries, you'll see all these treasures, including Pelsart's own bag of jewels and a 4th century Roman sort of cameo carving that he was planning to sell to the Mughal court in India on his return journey. Today we're looking at the rather bizarre and quite gruesome story of the shipwreck of the Batavia. But Paul, what you're saying is the early European exploration of Australia was 
just one big accident? Well, certainly, you know, serendipity <laughs> played its role because, of course, it all very much relies on the wind, doesn't it? So much so that even at the beginning of those journeys, when they're coming out of Europe, Mikey, quite often the winds would blow them over to Brazil before they could even get down to the Cape of Good Hope. I can't believe this. I'm about to make a map point. Because back in those days, it was much harder to try and calculate longitude. Yes, that's right. Longitude was a big problem. And so, of course, were the roaring 40s. Because once you got past the Cape of Good Hope and you're coming into the Indian Ocean... If you don't take a sharp left turn, (laughs) you're not going to make it to the Spice Islands. Next stop, Tasmania. And you probably even just missed the whole Australian mainland. That's right. You see, these winds from the Cape of Good Hope, even later on when the ship's navigators were actually aiming for the Australian mainland. If you were lucky, they might bring you to Adelaide, but they'd never really get you to Perth or Fremantle or the West Coast, which in many ways is why Adelaide was such an important city so early on. And that's why you get all those famous high seas stories like Eric Newby's Great Grain Race. Right. And of course, those winds didn't just stop at Adelaide either, did they, mate? (laughs) Yes, if anything, they got stronger, which is why rather than going through the Bass Strait, they'd actually often go further south, right down towards Antarctica, pop up the other side, completely bypass the Magellan Straits, and then head for home through the Atlantic. And of course, that's why the Falklands Ah. became so important, because that was the only safe harbour where they could drop anchor and restock their supplies. So that answers the question to me. I've always wondered why the British had a colony in the Falklands. Yeah, that's it. Falklands or South Georgia, depends on the winds, which one you'd land. But they were the key stop-off points that would get you home in one piece. Okay, mate. But back to Terra Australis. Back to the earliest European exploration. What you're saying, Paul, is like in the early days of maps of this part of the world... It was the Dutch leading the way, not the British. That's right. They were doing a lot of the mapping and they were doing a lot of the naming, which is why, of course, on those early maps, you see the name New Holland as much as you see the words Terra Australis. In fact, Captain Cook, Mikey, on his voyages, he had these Dutch maps with New Holland marking out the western side um, of Australia. So when he started mapping the east, he drew a line down the middle One side to be called New Holland and the other side, of course, to be New South Wales. Which means Western Australia was never part of New South Wales, whereas the other states... Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Western Australia was never part of New South Wales. Tasmania, Van Diemen's Lands, of course, was never part of New South Wales. But I'm afraid for all our Queensland, Victoria, South Australia listeners, you were all once originally New South Welshmen. But they quickly grew out of it, as did our friends up in Darwin. But here's the thing, mate. Why didn't the Dutch follow up? Well, I suppose that's, many ways, the final twist. And there's probably two reasons. Firstly, for the Dutch, really, it was always going to be just about trade. They just wanted to get the spices out of the East Indies as quickly and as profitably as they could. But also, this debacle, this shipwreck of the Batavia and the massacres and the stories that went with it, in many ways, that did put a bit of a lid on further explorations because the Dutch government, they just really wanted to sweep it all under the carpet. Whereas the Brits, the Brits did need a new colony. They weren't just looking for trade, they were also looking for land. Because now, you know, Captain Cook on his first voyage, his main mission had only been to track the transit of Venus. But by the time he returns from his last trip... Well, actually, he didn't return, Paul. Let's not forget, never get involved in a local fight in Hawaii. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so Cook didn't return. But if he had, by the time his ships got back to Blighty, those 
13 colonies on the other side of the pond had declared independence. Independence, exactly. And that's critical, Mikey, because the 13 colonies that went on to form the USA, that's where, for the previous 100 years, the British government had been sending all its convicts. A lot more than were ever sent to Australia. Why? What? What? More convicts got sent to the Americas than ever got sent to Australia. Yeah, take that, producers of The Simpsons. That's right, Mikey. But if suddenly these 13 colonies are closed um, to the Brits, they need somewhere new to send all their 'er ne'er-do-wells. Ah, Paul just said 'er ne'er-do-wells. Yes, that's what we like to call them, mate, 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-wells. Yeah, and that, I'm afraid, is why in 1787, when they send the first fleet out to set sail from Portsmouth, the purpose is founding the world's largest open-air detention facility, and that's why half my family owes George Washington a beer. All right, so there you are, folks. What really happened when Europeans first made their way down under? And I have to uh, doff my metaphorical cap to you, Paulie. That Batavia truly was one howler of a shipwreck. (laughs) Yeah. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hissed. The Rest Is Hissed, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler.